tied for the most terrifying day of How my life. How are you doing, you wonderful nerds? Scott here, and welcome day to day 24 life. of the Month of Monsters podcast, a Scooby-Doo podcast where I am watching Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed every single day for the entire month of October, and boy, is it killing me inside, but we're almost done, and my favorite part of doing this podcast is getting to chat about this movie with some really awesome people from the internet. And today we have a special guest. We have Tazon Days here. Hey, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to do this just kind of out of the blue last minute, it seems. Oh, no, it's fun. It's a fun concept. And uh, let me tell you, I got to dig a little bit deeper in my Netflix library than I normally would. So, hey, hey, hey. That's right. And you know what's interesting about that is I feel like maybe maybe it's just because I'm viewing it uh, in different, like on my iPad or on my Apple TV, but I feel like the thumbnails have changed for uh, for these movies. So maybe maybe people are watching it so much that they had to update the uh, the graphics and be like, oh. Well, I'm sure Netflix does research on their thumbnails where they try yeah. different thumbnails for each feature and see which one gets the most engagement. Uh, CNN does that. I was in a CNN article and he was telling me that there is no article that they don't A-B test headlines or and also thumbnails if there's an image uh, and then research which one gets the most clicks, the most engagements and then mm. that after that initial beta test becomes the final thumbnail i wouldn't be surprised if netflix does something similar where oh, yeah. they have three or four candidate thumbnails for a particular uh show or movie and uh see which one does the best and then maybe that's the main thumbnail or maybe they see which one does best for each population and ah. you kind of get a customized thumbnail that is most likely to engage your demographic uh that's data fantastic. is quite interesting. Well, I took that in a totally nerdy direction, didn't I? No, I love I guess, it. Thank you. I guess you. <laughs> I'm on the right podcast. You sure are. <laughs> no, that's fascinating, though. I mean, Netflix, they, they've, they've got the money. They could do all those types of tests to find out uh, what is the best one to get you to click and watch uh, for an hour and a half Scooby-Doo 2 well, Monsters Unleashed. Well, the thing is, they're not as dependent on ad revenue being derived from the traffic as, say, a site like YouTube. Because, of course, YouTube very heavily prioritizes watch time, session time, user retention, and very heavily rewards you if you're able to get your audience to come back and spend more time on the site and create content that does that. Uh, Netflix, the joke is that Netflix never has any failures because they don't publish metrics. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that leaves room for perhaps more uh, niche things uh, that might not be getting as much attention, but maybe have some artistic merit. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's funny. I was, uh, yeah, the start of Scooby-Doo 2, I didn't realize it was written by James Gunn. Yeah, that's right. And that has been uh, a really interesting talking point because there are certain elements that I feel like are very James Gunn in here, but then other parts that, I don't know, it just, it's, it feels like an odd movie to attribute to that man. Well, you know, the script was not absolutely terrible. I mean, th there were a few lines that were 
you know, a little bit, you know, can't be questionable dialogue, you know, like this is only the first rung of the ladder of your demise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or, you know, jo- jokes that did not age well, like, you know, oh, uh, this for mystery sure. goes down like a dot com. Like a dot like, com. Oh, it's like this, this, this is very 2004. <laughs> they, like, thank you for bringing that line up because that's the line I keep forgetting to talk about. We're 24 days in and I keep forgetting to bring that up. I love that line. It's so of the time. <laughs> yes, very, very. Very much, you know, with the uh, the memory of the the crash of two thousand was two thousand one, I think it was two thousand somewhere in there, uh, where the dot com bubble burst. <laughs> <laughs> I I remember because a family member of mine had, had a number of tech stocks, and like, oh gosh, this all went down. Uh, whoops. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, you know, and, and oddly enough, I actually worked with James Gunn for a day uh, about Did you five really? years after that. Uh, he dated an early YouTuber named Tara Naomi, who was one of the earliest musicians on YouTube. Uh, she had a viral video in 2006 called Say It's Possible. And she was one of the first music YouTubers who signed with a major label. And, uh, you know, it was kind of the guinea pig for what do you do with a music career post-viral music video on YouTube. Uh, anyway, she was filming a music video, and because mm-hmm. they were dating, James Gunn was directing it, uh, and it filmed here in L.A. at a venue called the Hotel Cafe, which is a somewhat storied venue, uh, because I believe singers like Katy Perry, Adele, etc., uh, made cameos there and sang before their uh, public attention and their career and their fame. So... Yeah, that was an interesting experience. And uh, yeah, he seemed like a great guy. Very like likable guy. Uh, yeah. Good artist. Good director. And uh, who uh, definitely, yeah. If you're on a, a fair number of sets or part of a number of different projects, you um, you remember people who try to do things right by cast and crew and try to treat everybody amicably. And, yeah. You know, J- James was one of those good guys. You know, he, he was one of those people. He, he tried, tried his best to... Uh, make things right even though it was an indie shoot and you know it wasn't a super high budget thing he sure. uh, he tried to keep everybody happy and that makes a difference when you're on a set because it's not a super super exciting thing to uh, yeah. <laughs> to act in anything it's a lot of sitting around and hurry up and wait yeah you know that, that's something that i've said a, a lot about this movie specifically is that you know, james gunn only uh wrote it he didn't direct it but i do feel like everyone who was acting in this movie like they just felt like they were having fun on set. It came across that way to me, at least. I don't know if uh, some people I think have disagreed in the past. But, yeah. Well, I mean, you've got to do that when I mean, it's mostly shot on sound stages and, and composite shots. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and maybe that's kind of you know, having any type of entertainment career uh, in front of the camera. It kind of ruins movies to some extent because I'm watching it immediately and I'm like, oh, OK, so they have uh, the museum which is, you know, they, they start with the outside shot and the red carpet, and I'm immediately going like, okay, they have the wide shot of the outside of the museum, yep. and then I can tell very much the red carpet shot is cutting to a soundstage, and I don't actually think any of that was outdoors. Uh, really? But, um, yeah. uh, you know, certainly the, the zoomed-in parts where they have different uh, fans reacting on the red carpet, you know, the dudes with the tattoos, and, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's definitely indoors, and that's in a smaller cropped shot. Um, but yeah, yeah. uh, what do you, what do you think? Cause I mean, you, yeah. for me, yeah, like yeah. I, I'm immediately like, it's immediately thrust into sort of this 
small town trope of Coolsville, yeah. uh, which is kind of a, a very Americana storytelling device because the regular small town, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, it's Stranger Things, you know, does this in its series or, uh, you know, 80s tropes like Encyclopedia Brown, like the small town is something that helps make the absurd seem normal and seem everyday and likable in yeah. american culture and storytelling uh but then it's kind of like later but then they just kind of keep tacking onto the small town and you know eventually like coolsville gets to be the size of like chicago <laughs> yeah yeah because like, there are those shots where they're being chased by like the giant metropolis yeah. i'm like it has it has this giant mine <laughs> operation i'm like okay That's right. yeah the small town it just kind of gets to become absolutely everything for the sake of plot <laughs> yeah because they're even being like they're being chased by a ghost pirate ship at one point and like you get to see all this traffic and all these giant buildings around so yeah that's a that's a that's a great observation yeah. that i hadn't but, noticed but, at that point yeah well, and, and and then you also have films like this that you know for a moment they you know talk about real or serious issues like you know the first conversation with uh with seth green where he's talking about oh you're criminal psychology and uh mm-hmm. or you know that that part where they're they're hiding at mystery inc or whatever and they're talking there's that quick conversation about body imagery uh yeah. or you know, serious issues that you know in any other context you could kind of expand them into a oh gosh that could get pretty deep but you know it, it stays as something that doesn't go into that larger commentary it just kind of becomes a set piece for the plot that of course never has any consequences outside of coolsville <laughs> right but <laughs> the small what's... town context yeah because that's what's that's what's interesting about scooby-doo to me too is that at least with the original um series they were always traveling to to new locations being based in a, a place like coolsville is something that has because like, they, they couldn't afford to do that many different yeah. locations for this movie. <laughs> yeah, because in the first one, I don't know if you saw the first movie in this franchise. I did, I did not. You know, this is my Scooby-Doo knowledge. It's uh, it's you just starting to. to grow with this movie. You don't need to see the first one. But the first one, they do travel to to uh, other locations. And But the fact that, and I'm just now realizing this, like in the old cartoons, all of those classic villains, because a lot of the monsters that do come to life are from the cartoons, which is a, a nice little old there um but all of them are captured at like different locations but the fact that the villains have like a bar that they all go to in coolsville <laughs> kind of says that all of oh, this oh, happened oh, in coolsville oh, it's a bar it's yeah. a dance club it sure is it's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's like an like arcade a, uh, yeah it's a, it's a new orleans uh type speakeasy <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and saloon it's an old west saloon it's like it's just absolutely everything and and you know that's where they you know diversity because they don't have a lot of diversity in terms of the cast of this movie. But no. boy, like the bad guys, they get to be the village people. Like that's where they get everybody like, oh, they, you can be old. You can be, you can look like that's whatever, right. be whatever body shape. Like this will be our scene of diversity. Yes. Uh, and, and I always joked that like, you know, shows that didn't you know, particularly have a, uh, necessarily a lot of diversity in the casting, even from the 90s, like, you know, uh, 
I would watch shows like Martial Law, you know, actually Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah, uh, of course. Did have some, uh, of course. But, you know, the bad guys were always kind of this cast of like <laughs> diversity of the village people because they didn't want to make the presumption that bad people were all of one ethnic group. So <laughs> right. like, they made sure it was this cast. Like, OK, we're going to have like a, a uh, <laughs> uh, you know, a uh, Chicano person, a black person, a white yeah. person. They, like, just make sure that there's diversity in the bad guys because we don't want to be uh uh getting that yeah. angry mail being like oh my gosh i am so offended why were all of them looking like uh so yeah. no, uh, that's, that's another hollywood trope <laughs> that's the thing like you see all of these movies and hollywood you know writing movie or, or writing and, and just they kind of start to rhyme in terms of the ways that they tell stories and the way the casting happening it happens mm-hmm. um I also like to do something in these movies where I kind of count the big set pieces because Ooh, once yeah. I see a big set piece and I know they spent a lot of money there, I'm like, okay, this set piece is going to be coming back at some point. So yeah. I'm looking at starting, okay, there's the big museum. <laughs> yep. <laughs> looking at that and starting the movie, they spent a lot of money there. And of course, you know, when they actually film these movies, they film all of the scenes that take place in a particular set piece that's right. at, at one time. So that's like two or three days of shooting the museum. Then they uh, go through the different set pieces. So you have the big mine. That's another yeah. set piece. Uh, the dude's house was a little bit of a set piece. I expected that to be a bigger set piece. Yeah. Uh, but it kind of filled that uh, thing in the middle, that, that space in the middle of the movie. Uh, the Mystery Inc. Uh, laboratory was yeah, that's another right. big set piece. And uh, then actually outside of the museum kind of was a supplemental set piece. And uh, you see, in, especially lower budget films, you can kind of almost like clockwork predict when you're watching them. Like, okay, <laughs> whatever happens in this movie, I know that big set piece is going yes. to come back into usage. <laughs> yeah. Because... Uh, and they, you see that in TV series too. You know, what, I, I, apparently they're ending The Walking Dead, not to bring in other series, but uh, you know, one of the things I liked about the first season when Frank Darabont, uh, you know, the original visionary, uh, mm-hmm. was uh, allowed to kind of have free reign, is that he used all these different set pieces in yeah. The Walking Dead, and I could immediately tell when it switched to season two, and like, oh gosh, this is all in Herschel's farm. That's season right. Season three, <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's all in the prison. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, they wanted to make more money off this show. That's right. <laughs> and so they cut down the number of set pieces. Like, We're just going to use one big set piece and save some money on this. That's, that's so, right. Yeah, you're absolutely right, because the, the monster, they refer as both the monster hut and the monster hive the place where they make the the monsters that you know they they go to it around the middle of the film where the monsters are actually created and then they steal a thing from it so they have to go return it in the end and that's that's the yeah yeah uh, that's the recurring set piece yeah yeah and then there's you know that long scene where they uh they figure out how to how to kind of kick what was it the the dark ghost whatever that had to be kicked in the in the oh yeah the the black (laughs) neck ghost yeah uh but yeah i mean it's uh you know and, and this is one where i didn't actually look at the credits uh, for for this particular movie, but you know, obviously, I guess the, it, by 2004, it got to a point where CGI was not super duper expensive. Right. To do. Wikipedia said the budget for the movie was 25 million dollars. Yeah, uh, it which, was which significantly a, lower. Than a the little first bit movie. low for me, yeah, because because it, it does have quite a bit of CGI. Um, I was wondering because you know something that became an issue in LA 
uh, especially around 2010, 2011, is a lot of the CGI work being outsourced uh, from, you know, L.A. jobs that are fairly high paying and, Mm -hmm. you know, benefit the economy of California to other countries where it's just cheaper to have the CGI done in China or Hungary or many other places. Right. Uh, And sometimes you can actually see in in the movie credits uh, of Hollywood movies where uh, the CGI was done. And uh, I didn't actually, I, I, I have to admit, I fast forwarded through the credits uh, of this. I, I did not sit and watch them all. I did see the uh, the Game Boy Advance. Okay, I was going to ask if you had seen that. <laughs> well, no, I was kind of skimming to, uh, yeah. <laughs> skimming for Easter eggs. Yeah, like, of course. Okay, there's the, uh, the Easter egg at the end with the Game Boy Advance code. Um, I was watching this, though, and I almost kind of wondered... Yeah. What would this movie have been if it was made with practical effects in 1980s technology? Ooh. Like if the script had kind of been written for, yeah, say 1985 technology. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, they wouldn't you know, have Gr- even Gremlins attempted or, the tar monster. Or, yeah. Or Ghostbusters or something. Yeah, cause, yeah. cause I feel like you had to do more acting and more, uh, real dramatic turns with mm-hmm. less technology. And yeah. yeah, now it's kind of uh, technology allows in and composite shots and CGI. So it's just kind of like, she, I mean, I, I think Scooby had some funny scenes, I guess you could make the dog yeah. dan- dance and do all sorts of other things. But um, in some ways, uh, while certainly they're cheesy, there's a certain cheesy effect to 1980s movies with practical effects, like never ending yeah. story. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, I, I don't know. I, I, I miss, it seemed like an authentic cheesy. I don't know if that's a, a weird way to put it. Sure. But, uh, you know, this is, it's like a highly produced cheesy with this yeah. thing. I don't know. It's, I don't think it's a bad movie to see once. I think it's a movie <laughs> that certainly it's, it's going to entertain it. And it did. It was very successful, uh, entertained kids and families and, yeah. You know, yeah, just watch it once, guys. You don't have to watch it every day. That would be... I wouldn't recommend it, <laughs> personally. Um, but yeah, I, I totally see what you're saying. Like, I, I do appreciate uh, where they did use practical effects. Like, some of the ghosts were just people in costumes, which I thought was... Like, the Black Knight ghost, you know, that probably would have been CGI today if they had done something like that. But the fact that it was mm-hmm. an actual physical thing with, like, some puppetry in the helmet was was nice. And some of the other ones, the Minor 49er and Captain Cutler's ghost, mm-hmm. very similar. Um, I, I've been saying this a lot, but I even think the 10,000 volt ghost, even though that was purely CGI, I thought that actually still kind of holds up it looks that pretty was good. one of the best executed cgi uh, yeah. uh effects in the movie most yeah. definitely uh mm-hmm. there were a couple strange editing mistakes you know uh i noticed 39 37 time index the word police is spelled backwards on a police vehicle hmm. uh is it kind of doing a it's it's mirrored yeah, backwards. yeah. Uh, is there doing a crane shot that pans up uh, so oh. if, you, if you're looking at it on Netflix, go to 3937. Check it uh, there's, out. There's an odd uh, CGI mistake there, which I don't yeah. know if they were mirroring the shot or what they were doing. But yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've I've been noticing a lot of little stuff like that. Like we had a um, the, I recorded a, an episode a while ago that ended up never uploading because of just uh, audio errors. But I will say oh this goodness. anyway. Yeah, uh, I've had a couple of them so far like that. But I had um, there was one that was uh, we 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 pointed out 
that when Scooby's driving the van and they're trying to get away from the pterodactyl ghost, the pterodactyl ghost crashes into a billboard of like a, a diapers. A, a baby. Yeah, I yeah. remember that. And it says it's the, the sign says I'm a party pooper, which is like kind of clever because the pterodactyl ghost did ruin the party at the beginning of the movie. There you go. So there's a little little bit of connection, a little bit of symbolism there. there. Yeah, for sure. But, um, yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, I I guess it's, uh, um, I, you know, I never really watched the Scooby-Doo cartoon, so it's harder for me to have opinions that situate this live action conversion in the context of the larger franchise and, and where it comes from. No, totally. I mean, that's that's what's been interesting about doing this show is having people on who I've had people on who are like Scooby Doo experts, and we and we chat about stuff. I'm certainly not an expert. I'm just a fan of the franchise. I've not seen everything that there is to see, um, but I just I love the characters and I love the world that they live in. And I this movie is so ridiculous that I kind of wanted to talk about it a bunch with uh, with different people. Well, but, but I do you know like who getting, else yeah. I worked with. I worked with Seth Green. Oh, Very really? Briefly, because I had a cameo in Robot Chicken. Uh, I think I, I recorded it in 2008 and it came out, I believe, in 2009. Uh, it was, believe it or not, a Chocolate Rain parody. Uh, I, Whoa, who would have thunk it? Uh, yeah, but no, I, uh, a friend of mine was a writer on the show and ended up writing me in and I went in and recorded it. And oh, then wow. about nine months later, because that show has such a long post-production oh, of course. phase, because yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, not, it's stop motion is not necessarily the fastest thing. Uh, I went in and recorded the uh, dialogue for the uh, DVD commentary. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, got so to meet, you, got to meet Seth. That's so cool. I loved him in this movie. I thought yeah. he, I thought he did a really good job. So, Seth is an extremely talented actor. Uh, you know, certainly one of the the most talented voice actors, and uh, oh, yeah. uh, just yeah, you know, just a really really top notch guy. Yeah, totally. I you know I, I always point out his character as as like a major talking point because number one, I felt like what he was given, like he really did bring a lot to the table. They they were they must have been asking him to to play it in a thousand different ways because they were really wanted you to think that he was behind it. They really were throwing him in as the red herring, so he kind of had to be menacing and a little bit strange and sinister, but he also had to be sincere so that by the end of it, you could be like, oh, I guess he was just a regular guy. So there's a lot to. Yeah. For and, and none of that is super easy to pull off dramatically oh. again when you're on a soundstage and <laughs> uh, a lot of what you know you see in the final product is not actually around them in yeah. uh, uh, in filming so yeah, yeah. kudos to him I think Absolutely. He, he, he made the most of it yeah totally and yeah i like it goes back to what i was saying about like i I feel like a lot of these actors had fun uh doing what they were were doing especially matthew lillard who gives it like 10 million percent in that role of of shaggy and he'll just he just goes crazy with uh with energy and excitement every line delivery is just like uh yeah it's just filled with lightning it's so good very much leads into that character you know i feel like the mid zeros had a lot of zany characters um you know that was kind of where you know sasha baron cohen's career yeah. uh peaked in in that era and you know even if you could you do kind of a crossover into youtube you see characters like uh fred oh you know, right uh, fred Figglehorn, uh yeah. 
uh, being a very over-the-top character. Chris Crocker at that time uh, was very <laughs> over-the-top and animated. And, I mean, honestly, you know, the Chocolate Rain video that went viral for me, if I were to expand that as a character, it's kind yeah. of a, a very big, over-the-top, performative, wild, nerdy, awkward type of, of thing going on there. And I feel like there is this this period of years in the mid-zeros where that type of content was very resonant in yeah. world culture. Yeah. I mean, especially for in the case of uh, Scooby-Doo, you know, that that is very heavily being marketed towards children. And so you want you want to have like a lot of I feel like a lot of people instinctively think, oh, it's children. You got to be loud and you got to be, you know, lots of motion and lots of action to keep their attention around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I noticed that none of the monsters or uh, uh, adversaries really actually die in the movie, right. do they? I think they just get incapacitated in some yes. sense. And it's made very clear uh, that they're just incapacitated. Right. Uh, so it, it kind of I think that might relate to it appealing to children or being a children's <laughs> Yeah. Movie, uh, and, no, no one actually gets hurt. You know, they get frozen or, yeah. You know. Right. Yeah. Even the, uh, like the designs of the monsters in general are more so, like, they're not as menacing. I feel like some, like, Minor 49er, I think, is kind of creepy. And same with Captain Cutler, but that, that's just because I don't like things uh, coming out of the water slowly and shooting harpoons at me. Um, but like, like the skeleton men are, were very much like, I've been calling them proto minions because they feel very like, you know, they're not as scary. The, the actors treat them as scary. The characters mm-hmm. treat them as scary, but they're very, they're just very silly and they, they seem more afraid of everyone else than, uh, than, you know, other monsters are. Yeah. I think sometimes the toughest dramatic challenges when you're acting in a movie like this is to not overact. Yeah. Uh, because as absurd as the environment is around you and uh, as absurd as, as it is in the script, you do have to give genuine responses and be grounded in, in, in an environment where you're <laughs> genuinely fearful, <laughs> genuinely ecstatic, yeah. genuinely pensive. And, you know, all of those real emotions are happening in the most contrived and <laughs> uh, unrelatable thing. And I mean, that's, that's very much comes yeah. out when you're voice acting and animation too. You like, you know, you'll get this character audition from like Nickelodeon where it's like, you know, okay, Billy, the broomstick was bullied <laughs> as a child and uh, never felt like he belonged with all of the other cleaning implements in the cleaning closet at, uh, uh Mr. Clean <laughs> High School or whatever the, <laughs> whatever the premise is and you just yeah. you have to you have to lean into it and find something real in you a yeah. real subtext that uh allows you to uh actually commit to that drama and and move forward with it but i also feel like you know what what was it's considered a children's movie seemed like it, it it's gotten a lot less serious since the time when I was a kid. Uh, it seems like a, a lot, or maybe I just watched dark movies as <laughs> yeah. a kid because, like, you know, Bambi, it's like, okay, Bambi's mom gets shot and that's a, a terrible yeah. traumatic moment. And then, you know, mm-hmm. The Land Before Time, 
uh, Littlefoot's mom you know, he has the, the very dramatic death scene that I remember crying about when I was six oh, years old. Man. And yeah. I, I remember we got the book for Land Before Time. And then I was in my room reading. <laughs> and my mom was like, why are you crying? I'm like, there's a story. It's so sad. <laughs> and then, you know, of course, you know, the Lion King, you have you know, yeah. Mufasa's death and, and just like, like this really instructive, uh, in, in the tough emotions of life to the young kids who might be watching these things. And then it seems like maybe there was this shift where suddenly like the mid nineties happened and you get all these, these movies like Dr. Doolittle and, and yeah. uh, it just kind of lighter, like family comedies yeah. that, that don't have those super dark, deep scenes or messages uh, yeah. And I, I, I kind of wonder why that shift happened. I wonder, was th- that tied to a shift in American culture and world culture in uh, how we value things or what we see as appropriate for our children? Because um, I don't know, yeah. like, are, are there sad children movie, children's movies anymore is it, that they really have uh, that, those think, deep, meaningful yeah. deaths? I, I, I know that maybe not necessarily deaths, but there are certainly, for me anyway, Pixar movies still kind of get me. There's okay, some stuff yeah. that, okay, yeah, 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 that's true. Kind of yeah, get yeah. me. Yeah. Like, you know, cause yeah, like, like finding Dory or, you know, you know, the, the, uh, the sense of being abandoned, lost. Yeah. Um, maybe that's just a Disney thing. Maybe, maybe that, maybe it's the difference in Disney storytelling and versus everyone else. <laughs> versus everybody else. Although yeah. Land Before Time was done technically, although he, oh, yeah. he did split off from Disney in the early 1980s and, and make films like American Tales and whatnot, and whatnot because, uh, uh, partly because I think he, uh, wanted to do more serious content and then, Disney was like, screw that. You and your successful <laughs> movies. We're going to make some successful dramatic movies ourselves. Hell yeah. <laughs> and they kind of had to come back. Yeah. I, 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 do I, I feel like an old man. No. Talking, no. <laughs> talking about the pop culture that I've experienced in my life. And a lot of kids and young people, if they haven't already fallen asleep, will be listening to this. <laughs> and they'll be like, oh, wow. Like, I have no point of reference for that because I was born in 2003. Yeah. <laughs> I have <laughs> no idea what the demographic of this podcast <laughs> is. They, they were like, yeah. It was like one year old when this uh, Scooby movie came out. Yeah, what, that's what right. are your demographics for your audience? I have practically, I have no idea. The people I'm aiming for are probably people like me who like saw this movie when they were growing up and, and kind of loved it. Oh, and how, how old are you now? I'm 26. Okay, that's not too bad. You're only 10 years younger than me. Oh, I wow! I didn't. I thought you were way younger. I know. I look way younger. I I, I guess I age well. I should sell a skin cream. You should, I would buy it. I think I'm getting, I think I'm getting up there. I, you know, I will say this though. I've always joked for the, for the past couple of years. Uh, it's not even a joke. It's just serious. I like, I really can't wait till I start looking older. Cause I feel like I look way younger than I actually oh, am. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it holds me back in terms of acting in roles on camera because, yeah. uh, I think I would naturally play roles of authority, like, you know, the chief of police, the yeah. mayor, the president, the professor, the senator, etc., and uh, still looking a little bit young on camera makes it harder for me to be believable in those roles of authority. Oh, 
Yeah, that's rough. Yeah, because I, I feel like, I mean, there are a lot of actors out there. There's that trope about how, like, people in their 20s are being, you know, late 20s are being cast as high schoolers still. Because that's You know, just... I, I, I appreciate movies that don't do that. Like, I was seeing yeah. uh, Bo, Bo Burnham's 8th grade. 8th grade, and yeah. And the first thing I noticed, like, wow, they actually cast age appropriately. They actually went to a little bit of extra effort, spent a little bit of extra money, and got actual high schoolers. Mm-hmm. to act in this movie um yeah actually did that with uh um uh what is the, the why am i forgetting the, the the youtube show that that's based on karate kid uh uh cobra kai cobra kai yeah, that's right uh, i'm yeah. like oh they're actually using high school kids <laughs> In yeah. this movie. So that's that's a realism that I appreciate. Yeah, and to to tie it back into Scooby Doo, uh, the 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 cast is supposed. To, well, the the characters are supposed to be um teenagers i think they are oh my right? gosh they look like 35 in this I movie i don't think they're supposed to be in this they, movie but like i the, think in the first movie they, they were trying to well, be I well remember. the only time they looked young in this movie is when they were looking at that picture of, <laughs> like you know the, the nostalgic scene where i don't know did they like do do uh some heavy they makeup or have, something to make them look younger i don't know they must uh, have um yeah they, they had because <laughs> if they looked like that the entire movie it would, it would have been much more youthful yeah, I feel like they they had to because there's no mistaking them for teenagers. In no, this movie. they look no. thirty in this movie. <laughs> like they look inappropriately old, and I think that I think that's that, probably why they framed it around like, oh, it's a museum in your honor to show like all the mysteries that you've done over the past decade yeah, or my so. Gosh. Yeah. They were like, all right, we have a script. We can't afford kid actors. Uh, <laughs> how do we modify this premise? Oh, mm-hmm. all right. <laughs> yeah, but then again, I guess. James Gunn, I will say, I think he knew exactly what the production constraints were that he had to write for and how to get his script actually picked up by the studios. He knew enough about the politics of production. Mm. Like, okay, (laughs) I know they're not going to cast actual 16, 17 year olds to (laughs) play this. But then again, if if they did, you know, would it be like a a Disney Channel special movie? Would it be? Well, (laughs) it's funny you say that because they they did do... um, uh, TV like Cartoon Network live action TV so Scooby there were two other movies after this two other live action Scooby movies after this really? and they were and they were prequels so they did have kid actors oh. and it was for uh, it was for Cartoon Network and they are not good oh there, there you go <laughs> if you can yeah. imagine yeah yeah no I mean it's it takes work to find kid actors who, who are actually good as kids oh like, I mean the actors are pretty good it's, oh okay the, the movie is not okay. good I thought yeah, you were yeah. saying they're terrible no no kid. no, no, no. They're terrible kid actors. I hate them. They're the worst. These children were so dramatically failing. (laughs) No, but I I still think that at least for Fred, I don't know the other actors, but at least for Fred, I'm pretty sure they still cast someone who is like early to mid 20s at least, Uh which is which is fine. I guess they needed they (laughs) needed someone who looked, you know, the part of Fred, but he didn't really even. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, but I Uh-oh, will say that's this. that's some dead air. We're looking for more stuff to talk about. Uh-oh. Time to, time to put out a tweet. 
<laughs> well, just to kind of go back to what you were saying, like th- this movie compared to the first one had a significantly smaller budget. It had, I think the first movie had uh, 84, 85 million. And, and you said like this second one had like the Wikipedia 20. says 25 million. It seems a yeah. little bit low. Maybe it was a little bit more than that, but they, they, yeah, it was cut significantly from the first one, which is, which was weird to me because I felt like for all of the CGI or even just even the live action like the practical effects the characters all of the monsters that they wanted to bring to life it just felt like they were being very ambitious for what yeah. they wanted yeah although to, do. Uh, to be fair like the resident evil movies are done at you know not yeah. a super high budget for by hollywood standards like 25 30 million dollars and mm. they have a fair amount of action and uh uh yeah. you know, cgi in them too so I, th- I think it was starting to get cheaper around the era that this movie yeah. was, was made I think a big portion of the budget in the first film um, was I, towards gigantic. Uh, they built even like huge set pieces, yeah. Uh, like yeah, enormous. I, I stuff. would love to see these storyboards for this movie. Yeah. Uh, what did this? What did it look like when it was storyboarded? Because <laughs> uh, you know, those of you listening who aren't, you know, is familiar with production. Like every, every production, like this, has a storyboard artist who is drawing out all of the shots uh, yeah. or options for the shots. You know, options A, B, and C uh, for the director, for the uh, director of photography, and the uh, director of the film uh, to kind of get an approximate sense of what it would, what it's supposed to look like. Uh, and I would be interested to see the storyboards. I'd also be interested to see the CGI previs. Yeah. Because, uh, that's also part of doing very CGI heavy movies. Is, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, you, you have artists who are sketch artists who kind of sketch. Okay. This is approximately what this monster should look like. And, uh, I wonder what CGI previs technology was like in 2004. Yeah. What that that process be, was. Those would be some interesting people. You have, you have five, six days. Uh, gotta yeah. get that whip crap, cracking, get these people on, uh, this podcast. <laughs> That's, that, that <laughs> is the ultimate goal yeah. of this podcast. That I you say it in every episode is, you know, by the end of it, I want to have someone who has worked on the movie <laughs> to come on. And I have, you, I have you two. You better dig through IMDb. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I have two actors who, who are in this movie. Movie who um, are they're just trying to clear things around their schedule but fingers crossed i think they're they're interested in being on and i won't well, say who yet but in case there. in case it falls through well it's, um, it's good to know they're still busy yeah really i was it's it's awesome because i man i love the people in this movie i, I think they're all great mm-hmm yeah i mean but i i was also a uh, i went to college for um uh, like film and, and specifically VFX stuff. So I focus. Oh, I, yeah. Boy. Yeah. That's uh, it's a tough field. Yeah. Tough, I, tough uh, field to get into. Well, I, my problem was I didn't go to uh, like a specifically um, school for film. I just went to a school that had a film degree. And Uh-oh. so well, yep. you're not going to be doing the commencement speech anytime soon. Are that's you? right. <laughs> well, I didn't even graduate. So I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I fumbled upon uh, or I stumbled upon YouTube. I guess fumbled is a good word too. But like, uh, 
I, uh, I I started doing YouTube stuff, and thankfully that took off because uh, yeah, I wasn't. That, yeah, that is kind of a recurring story. Uh, you know, we uh, not to plug my own podcast, but we just uh, interviewed. No, uh, please do. Uh, well, on, on, I do a podcast uh, with my co-host called Chocolate Pains, and uh, we just <laughs> talked to. Uh, Matthew Nelson, who started We Rate Dogs, which is a Twitter account. That was, you know, I seven, love that account. Seven million followers. <laughs> and, and they have some followers on other social media platforms, too. But he came up with the idea when he was a college freshman and absolutely yep. bored, a little bit disaffected with his career path, which I guess was golf management. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he jokes yeah. in the interview we do with him that he is a college escape artist. <laughs> 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 so far as uh, you know, he kind of created a, a viral internet brand that ended up being monetizable and it's like, hey, you know, this is my new life trajectory. So, yeah, uh, it's uh, refreshing to hear stories like yours that that align with you know and actually uh something we also brought up in another chocolate pains episode uh was that you know a, a month or two ago, uh, ago google and uh, i believe it was facebook maybe it was microsoft two, two large companies announced that they're no longer forcing undergrad degrees to be a prerequisite in their hiring Ooh. uh that they're actually uh, heavily weighing other factors and not making it an absolute requirement that you got a college degree from somewhere yeah. in their human resource reviewing. So, you know, I think, and, and, you know, you look at, uh, you know, the cost of college, which has tripled in yeah. real dollars since 1980. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I don't think the value of college has tripled since no. 1980, uh, while the cost of tuition in real dollars has tripled. So, uh, yeah. there's kind of a pending crisis, so to speak, in terms of it sort of, I think, pricing itself out of the market of cultural relevancy. And I say this as someone who has two degrees. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I would be incentivized to speak otherwise. Uh, but. Uh what what are your degrees in if i may ask um i did my undergrad in communications uh actually from the evergreen state college in uh, olympia washington which uh, has has made some news uh with other types of headlines lately but uh, <laughs> i i think it's, it's a great institution and it was good when i went there uh and the university of minnesota uh, I pursued a PhD in American studies, which is about as broad and nebulous as it sounds. It's basically <laughs> American history. I studied the relationship between performance and social change uh, in a historical context. But wow. I accidentally came into attention on YouTube yeah. uh, while I was pursuing my PhD and uh, left the program with a master's degree a year later. So, oh, wow. uh, maybe that's also a little bit part of my story is, uh, uh <laughs> being a PhD escape artist, escaped a, li a, a little bit further down the conveyor belt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and for me, at least it was that, um, I was going to, I, I was being taught film and in film production by teachers who, we're very used to a, an old school kind of way of, of well, using technology. Those who can't do teach. <laughs> that's right. No, that's not true. There are some amazing, fantastic teachers out there. And yeah. My heart I mean, out to them. I love my teachers, uh, but it's they, you know, the technology that they were working with and that they were used to was not 
what was being used in the the for my specific area of vfx stuff and Mm -hmm. uh so i felt like they weren't teaching me anything that i either didn't already know just from watching a lot of like vfx youtubers and and learning how to do you know through tutorials and and stuff like that um so i just kind of started doing youtube stuff and then i stopped going to class and uh turns out colleges don't like it when you do that so boy oh boy so uh, I better not look at your transcript. No, it's bad. <laughs> it's very bad. Oh boy, it's uh, not, uh, not not putting that one up on LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, but thankfully, it all worked out. Uh, who knew that there was a a market for another idiot yelling about comic books on the internet? Not oh, me. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that uh, your self deprecation is. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure exaggerated. But, uh, and now here we are talking about Scooby Doo on a podcast that nobody asked for. But thank hey, you to well, everyone who's you listening. Know, if, if it's what you're passionate about, you know, it's, it's good to uh, yeah to do your passion. You know, I've been having a lot of fun doing it, and I I really enjoy you know because I I've, a couple of these episodes have been people I've never really met or talked to before. I would even consider this episode one of those because I think you and I have did, did met you, briefly. I think okay. we met briefly a couple times, but like very yeah. That that's how my life is. Like everybody yeah. who's ever met me remembers meeting me, and yeah. I I can't possibly remember no everybody that I met totally. I, uh, I also, that happens to me a lot though. So, and I just, I feel like I'm the most forgettable person on the planet. So don't I, even I worry about I it. I wish I was forgettable. I wish I could <laughs> blend in. But in fact, I'm like Big Bird. I just stick out everywhere. <laughs> so there's no such thing as blending in when you're Tezante. No, I, I'm, like, I'm looking at your Instagram now. Uh, oh man, dude, a live Instagram commentary. Dude, well, no, because I'm I'm trying to think. Do I actually remember uh, ever seeing you? Now you don't have. You're one of those people who doesn't put a lot of photos of yourself. Nope. Oh, I see some. I see some out here. Uh, he, you always have a prop <laughs> of something else. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I uh, oh, I kind of like this dapper one. This oh. uh, this one uh, from June 9th. Oh, oh, uh, oh, thanking your patrons. You, you're doing Patreon, I guess. Oh yeah, that's um, where most of uh, most of the support comes from. Oh gosh, and I, I get a text right when I'm holding my phone, <laughs> and it's just right loud there in the microphone. Oh, There's you no know hiding that. You did not turn your phone off when you started to do this podcast. Like, no, I did not. Uh, that's yeah. I think I, I don't know. I think for me, I, I remember very briefly meeting at like, maybe ClamorCon or something like that. It might have been. It might have been there. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't anything. I don't think we even had a, a conversation. I think it was just like in passing, like, "Oh, hey, I'm Scott." And then, yeah, but yeah. So I. It, well, here's the thing. I. Yeah. <laughs> I seem standoffish and like i don't want to talk to people in social <laughs> situations i yeah. don't like because i don't mean to come off that way i just people read that in me and then uh i'm reaching out to them later i'm like oh yeah i'm sorry i didn't mean to seem like an anti-social nerd who was totally in my own head and made uncomfortable by social contact that's not <laughs> me at all like if uh if you get to know yeah. me i'm quite likable yeah. <laughs> yeah well i mean i'm i'm very uh, similar where i uh i'm very introverted so it's something like 
uh, VidCon, like day one, I'll be like, oh, this is super fun. Day like two or three, I'm just completely socialed out. I don't well, want to yeah, talk no. to anybody. A- extroversion is a resource that I need to conserve. Yeah. You know, I, I can't just like spend it all. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know, like uh, when you're like piloting the ship around a, social, a solar system in Mass Effect or something like that, where it's like yeah. you, you have a finite amount of fuel before you need refueling. And that's kind of how extroversion is for me. So yeah. I guess I would, I by default, an introvert, but I can be a oh, sure. perfectly energetic and amicable and likable extrovert uh, in spurts. You know, I'm yes. like a, che- it's like a, a cheetah. Like I, 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 I can, I'm one of the best extroverts on the planet <laughs> for about an hour and a half. And then, <laughs> You know, I need 24 hours and a box of Wheaties and uh, some meditation yes. and some bath salts uh, to to recover and come back into uh, my natural self. Yeah, I am 100% exactly the same way. Th- this podcast has been pushing my limits like day, oh, okay. day 24. <laughs> yeah. uh, not, not not this specific one. I don't mean like talking to you. Oh, yeah, I just mean... That, not, not you, Tay. You're wonderful. I mean, it's all, I mean, it's all the other people. The other in people, general. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard yeah. because you're not really editing these a whole heck of a lot, no. I, I imagine. And I can't. So, like, it's, it's, it's a little bit tough because, uh, like, you know, we, we, we edit our podcast that I'm on, which is, it's good. I mean, it, it helps for pacing and it's a standard thing yeah. to do. YouTubers do that, like, you know, Phil oh, DeFranco, yeah. uh, you know, commentators. I'm sure you probably edit your YouTube videos and jump cut them some. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it, it helps out with the podcast because sometimes a guest, it's just, <laughs> uh, you know, they, they, you get different guests that you know they have different styles. Yeah. Like some guests are like ninety minute conversation, thirty five minutes of, uh, of you know interesting yeah. stuff. Uh, yeah, and that's just you know got to let everybody be in their own rhythm. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've done old podcast before where like a guest will be like I I didn't know it at the time but a guest was like very like super nervous to be on so like they didn't talk a lot and I just felt like I felt like it felt like I was doing something wrong like is this are you having an okay time (laughs) I feel bad yeah that's you were worried I was going to be like that when we first started talking you were like oh wow he's really kind of quiet and not (laughs) Uh, but then I turned on my introvert or my extrovert Um, you know the thing about um, conferences and, and being an introvert is I always need to make sure that my hotel is close to where the conference or the convention is happening uh, because you'll have some places like you know San Diego Comic Con or South by yeah. Southwest where you can't get a hotel room that's not you know 35 45 minutes out <laughs> away <laughs> right. from where it's actually happening and I'm like no 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 I can't do that like I need to be right next to where the event is happening so yeah. I can slip into my room and and recuperate and then go out and be social again and yeah. kind of do that back and forth Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Like that's, I I'm very like for something like a any con like that, I'll plan out my day. I'll have like mm-hmm. a whole schedule that I want to do, and like I'll I'll usually sleep in past a couple things, there, there and then I'll yeah. I'll miss mm-hmm. everything until like that yeah. night, and I'll just yeah yeah you're you're not really there for the ten a.m. panels. Not, <laughs> no, not, not your style. 
<laughs> I I want to be. I write them there. It's like an aspirational goal in my in my okay. calendar. Okay, you know, there you go. it's it's like <laughs> if I'm awake by this time, I will absolutely <laughs> go to this panel. You try 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 to dream big. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I've I've had a number of those 10 a.m. panels that uh, <laughs> aren't aren't always well intended, but you know, I think they actually put me there as bait. That's oh yeah, it it's like oh, taste on days on the the 10:30 panel, so must get, get up early. Get, get up for him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that must feel nice then, if 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 you can you know get people to adjust their sleep schedules to be uh up for you oh well uh, you know it i guess i should be a superhero that uh, that's right <laughs> <laughs> that would be an interesting superpower if you're only superpower like if that was your x-men mutation mm-hmm. uh, your, your only <laughs> mutation is that you can get people to get up early for whatever oh, you're doing God. i guess what would i do with that superpower i guess i would uh i would walk out into the street at 3 a.m <laughs> i'd plop down a soapbox and i would be like the pied piper you know, people <laughs> would be coming out of their houses and apartments in their bathrobes and their slippers and their unkept hair and That's i would right. just be like hey follow me Follow me and do what I say and invade <laughs> what I tell you to invade. That, that's the most important thing for movie plots. Is that's right. I, I can tell them to invade or sabotage whatever I tell them. And then it's like it's something that wears off after the early morning is gone. Like I have until... 10 in the morning <laughs> to me. people and start like, snapping out yeah, of it <laughs> the, then the clock hits 10.01 and they just completely snap out of it <laughs> and it's like oops well I, I better go into hiding I, uh, it was too much of a muckracker <laughs> it's like yeah there was Tay Tay uh, was out this morning again and he's now in hiding <laughs> there's a national he'll man. be out He'll be Interpol. out early in the morning. <laughs> Interpol has put out a uh, <laughs> a grave uh, warrants. What whatever Interpol p- puts out, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, that would be a fascinating power. I like that it went from just being able to wake people up to also being able to control them into doing your bidding. Well, I hey, I mean, very... you, ha- you had to yes and for a movie plot. That's right. It's for the sake of plot. Uh, the progression was there. <laughs> exactly like this movie Scooby Doo too. Just kind of like you know what? Ah. We'll just we'll affirm whatever progression is, uh, <laughs> is needed for this to happen. You brought it back to Scooby-Doo, and I appreciate that. (laughs) Tay, thank you so much for being on this podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Uh, where can people find you and all the great stuff that you create on the internet? Well, I'm very excited about my podcast, Chocolate Pains, which you can search for on any platform that uh, you listen to podcasts on. Uh, and uh, we talk to social media influencers and people who have built viral content, viral business ideas, do in-depth interviews. And also, I have a lovely personality as well as my co-host, Taylor. So very excited about that. And, uh, you know, also occasionally post videos and do uh, stuff on YouTube. You can Google Tay I'm on Twitch as well. Don't watch my Twitch. I'm not a very interesting gamer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's where I'm at right now. So 
Fantastic. We'll have all those links in the description or the show notes of the podcast if you guys want to go check that out. Uh, and then you can also, if you want to, uh, I'm on d- Twitter and Instagram at Scott Nice Wonder. You don't have to follow it. It's just, I just do it because I feel like I have to plug my stuff at the end of everything that I do. And I'm really bad about that on YouTube. I never tell people where to find me. Oh, I also never say that I have a YouTube channel on this podcast. Don't worry about it. That won't be anywhere. <laughs> um oh and thank you to everyone who's leaving us some fantastic reviews of this podcast on itunes i love reading them they're very silly and very funny and we might do an episode uh coming up where i read off some uh some of your reviews so oh i could i could voice some reviews that'd be fun oh that would be awesome yeah we'll keep that in mind then everyone go write your reviews now and we'll see (laughs) if we can get tay to voice some of them That would be fantastic. Well, uh, I think we're about to wrap it up. Tay, would you like to join me? Uh, unless there's anything else you want to add. Uh, no, we, this is where we do the Scooby-Doo thing. It sure is. Yeah, would you like to join me as we do our best scooby dooby doo together? Um, sure. Here we go. scooby dooby doo Scooby-Dooby-Doo! Scooby-Dooby-Doo!